Welcome to the official podcast for Triumvir Clio's School of Classical Civilization. I'm Beth, a.k.a. Triumvir Clio. Hello again. Welcome back. I hope you're well. I'm still hanging in there. I don't have to shovel on the day I'm writing this, so that's good. Hopefully the snow will all be gone by the time this drops at the end of April. (laughs) Anyway, today we will conclude the plays attributed to Seneca, except most scholars today agree that this play was written after Seneca died and is therefore definitely not by him. But it is in his style, and some ancient sources decided that he wrote it, and it is a Roman tragedy, no matter who wrote it, so it would have been in this course no matter what. As you'll see when we go through the summary, this play foreshadows Seneca's death, so it doesn't make sense for him to have written it. If you're an opera fan and are familiar with Monteverdi's L'Incoronazione di Popea, this play should feel very familiar to you. That's the um, the coronation of Popea in English, L'Incoronazione di Popea. N- any excuse to speak Italian, I'm happy. <laughs> and if you're not familiar with that opera, once I give you the cast of characters, you'll probably agree that this doesn't really sound like something written by Seneca. That cast well, includes... Nero, his first wife, Octavia, our title character, Seneca, Papea, Nero's second wife, the ghost of Nero's mother, Agrippina, and your usual assortment of unnamed messenger types, including Octavia's nurse and, of course, a chorus comprised of Romans. The play is set in the palace in Rome and clearly takes place in 62 CE because that's when Nero ended his marriage to Octavia so that he could marry Papea. Uh, So this is akin to some of Shakespeare's histories, part tragedy, part history, possibly part propaganda of the next dynasty. I am once again working from the Ella Isabel Harris translation, and I will get into much more detail on the actual history in the discussion part of this episode. So with that, let's take a short break before finding out what Pseudo-Seneca has to say about these few days in the life of Seneca and his most famous student. The play opens with Octavia. She's not happy. And she's happy to tell you all about it. She's stuck in this marriage to a man who, let's face it, is not that great, and it all seems to be going downhill from there. Um, historical spoiler alert? Her nurse enters and tries to offer comfort. She's not very good at it. But ultimately, Octavia decides to stoically put up with her lot in life, even though her husband is taking up with a new woman. And who knows what that might mean for Octavia's future, except, of course, for our playwright and everyone living today. The chorus of Roman women sing about how much they love Octavia and how much they hate that upstart Papea, along with a few jabs at Nero, too. Seneca enters and monologues about the state of the world. He doesn't approve. People should be content to live a simple life. They should be good Stoics, not hedonists like his pupil Nero has turned out to be. And who should enter? Nero himself, of course. Seneca tries to counsel Nero to give up his designs on Papea. Nero declares that he has absolute power, so he's going to do whatever he wants. In fact, he's going to marry Papea tomorrow. I mean, she's already pregnant with his child, so he probably should make an honest woman out of her. The ghost of Agrippina enters. She's come for the wedding. 
but she also has all that knowledge of that ghosts have. I mean, you'll recall more than one epic has a scene in which, you know, when you want the skinny on the future, you go to the underworld and ask the dead. So Agrippina goes on for a bit about Nero and Papea and how Nero's destined for a violent death and how she kind of wishes he'd never been born. And then she goes back to the underworld to mourn. Octavia tells the chorus not to cry. It's just a divorce. Just because mommy and daddy don't love each other anymore, it doesn't mean that they've stopped loving the people of Rome. The chorus isn't so sure. They blame Nero, which, you know, they're not wrong. The nurse and Papea enter. Papea had a nightmare in which her first husband, I'll come back to him in the discussion, came to take her from Nero, and Nero killed him. (laughs) Okay, you can probably guess what I'm going to tell you when we get to the discussion of this play. Anyway, the nurse says what parents always say. It's just a dream. It doesn't mean anything. Why would Nero kill your first husband? Papea decides that her best move is to go and say some prayers. The chorus sings a short song about how beautiful Papea is. A messenger enters and tells the chorus about what's been happening outside the palace. The people love Octavia and they are not happy that Nero is putting her aside to marry Papea. They believe Octavia is the rightful empress and are calling for her to be reinstated. And they blame Papea for all of it. Nero enters. He's livid that the people have turned against him. Clearly, the only way to take care of this is to take care of Octavia, if you know what I mean. He tells his prefect to put Octavia on a boat, sail away, and leave her on some distant land. She can die there. He doesn't specify whether he means by natural or unnatural causes. The chorus sings about approval ratings and gives specific examples of what happens when an emperor falls low in the polls, shall we say. Octavia is dragged on stage asking why the exile when everyone knows that Nero plans to have her killed. Can't she just die at home? The chorus sings of the fates of a number of women in the Julio-Claudian dynasty, Octavia just being the latest victim to the hubris of that family. Octavia puts up a hand. She will now only pray to the gods of the dead. She stoically steps aboard the ship that will take her to Pandatoria and to her death. The chorus prays for gentle winds and that Octavia will not suffer when she dies. And that is where the play ends. All right. I didn't go into too much Roman history in the intro to this episode because I didn't want to give away the plot of this play. But now that we've seen Nero banish Octavia so that he can marry Papea, let's talk about this very messed up dynasty. I'm going to attempt a brief overview. I plan to cover the always delightful Roman historians, including Tacitus and Suetonius, later, and we will get into much more detail of this time period when we get to those writers. Both Tacitus and Suetonius write about Nero, and neither of them much cared for him, so we need to take their histories with a grain of salt. First off, Nero and Octavia. Octavia was the daughter of Claudius, the famous, the emperor famous for his stutter and portrayal by Derek Jacobi in I, Claudius. (laughs) Okay, I recommend you get out a piece of paper and start drawing as I talk, because that might help you keep track of this family tree. Are you ready? 
Octavia's mother was accused of plotting against the emperor, a.k.a. Claudius, so she was executed. Claudius then married his niece, Agrippina, Octavia's first cousin. Agrippina had a son from her first marriage. That boy is none other than Nero, and she convinces Claudius to adopt Nero and name him as heir. This makes Nero Octavia's first cousin once removed and adopted stepbrother. And to seal this rise in status, Octavia and Nero were married. Claudius died, and Nero became emperor. He and Octavia were still teenagers at this point in time, and given what we know about frontal lobe development today, that might explain some of Nero's erratic behavior. Probably not all of it. Dude was crazy. Anyway, now for Papeia, a woman who is complicated to say the least. Her first husband, the one she dreams about in this play, was killed because Agrippina deemed him a threat to her son. Oh, Agrippina. I don't think I can get into her in this episode. She's got a massively long backstory herself. Back to Papeia. Through her second husband, she met Nero, and it all depends on who you ask, but either he sets his sights on her or she set her sights on him. Whether it was Papea's ambition or Nero's hormones, Popea became his mistress, and as we see in this play, they each get divorced so that they can marry. Now, if we think again about what happened to her first husband, was Papea really ambitious or was she just trying to save her skin by doing whatever Nero wanted. I, Like I said, she's complicated. Meanwhile, Octavia, as we saw in this play, is exiled. And she's later murdered either on Nero's or Papea's orders. Which one? Who knows? We don't know. Sources differ. And when Papea was pregnant with her second child by Nero, she too died. And this is where her story becomes tabloid fodder, as if it wasn't already. According to Tacitus and Suetonius and other so-called primary sources, they weren't actually writing at the time, they were still writing later. But here's what they had to say. They say Nero kicked her to death while she was pregnant. Which does sound totally like a thing Nero might do, given what we do know about him. But taking that grain of salt I mentioned should give us pause. She was heavily pregnant in ancient Rome. Maternal mortality was high. She probably died in childbirth or from complications of a miscarriage, which makes sense how that tabloid version would come and turn into her being kicked in the belly when she was pregnant. In my reference list for this episode, I have a link to an article by Paul Schubert in which he discusses a fragmentary Greek poem that supports this thought and it involves complicated interpretation of languages that I don't speak so I recommend reading his article to understand why a Greek poem might provide evidence that a Roman empress died of natural causes. Now of course (laughs) what does all of this have to do with the play we covered in this episode? Well for one thing it does help show that this play has to have been written after Nero's reign ended Octavia's death is foreshadowed, Papea's death is foreshadowed, Nero's death is foreshadowed. We know that Seneca died before Nero, so there is no way that this play was written by Seneca himself. And what does this play have to say about us today? Well, it's about ambition, politics, 
absolute power. What else do you see in this play? Pop over to the blog and share. It's at triumvirclio.school.blog. That's in the show notes, along with references, including the article I mentioned. The link to my Patreon is there, too, should you feel so inclined. In the next episode, we will start Ovid's Metamorphoses, I think. Unless I start writing an introduction to Ovid and discover that I need a whole episode to talk about him. But right now, I'm thinking we'll be able to cover his bio and book one of Metamorphoses, too. Whichever it is, I'll talk to you then. You can join the discussion of this and everything covered in this podcast by following the link in my show notes. And if you're enjoying what you've heard so far, please consider supporting the show with a monthly donation of your choosing, just like public radio. And please also consider giving a five-star review on your podcatcher of choice so that more people can discover the fun that is Triumvir Clio's School of Classical Civilization.